Before we begin, we'd like to apologize for the audio quality in this episode. So we ran into some recording problems over the episode after already postponing it once for internet issues. So this is why on a few occasions throughout the episode, the audio quality will drop momentarily. Still, we hope you find the episode as informative and enjoyable as we did. Welcome to episode 14 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is June 14th, 2020. And in our episode today, we're going to focus on the 1918 influenza pandemic. Yeah, today we're going to discuss what has quickly become the go-to historical pandemic that everyone, the public, the media, academics, have been comparing to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Our guest today is Dr. Ida Millen. Ida is a lecturer in European history at Carlow College in Ireland. She is the author of Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War, and Revolution in Ireland, 1918 to 1919, which was published in 2018. Before working in academia, she worked in the newspaper industry and as a travel journalist, which is someone else uh, who also worked in a non-academic job before becoming an academic, and I know, Lee, you did as well, uh, I think offers unique perspectives both on how to do research and also how to think more generally. Yeah, for sure. Ida is currently working on the history of infant summer diarrhea, looking at the international influences on the local management of a disease that used to be a significant killer in the global north and remains so in underdeveloped countries. Her other research interests include working life in medicine and the newspaper industry, along with gender in the workplace. So hi, Ida. Hi, and thank you very much for having me on. Sure. As usual in our episodes, we begin by describing the local effects of COVID-19 where we're at. So let's start with you, Merle. Was was there anything unusual in Annapolis over the past week or so? Um, So we're now in, I think, phase two of reopening. Um, so things have progressed. The people who have the board out that I've mentioned in previous episodes with little jokes and humor are going to stop having their board out as of next week because they've moved to phase two. So they, they expect that there'll be fewer people around. Um, we know them actually very well and their dog named Puddles. Very nice dog. And we also have started walking more. Um, We brought back out the kids' stroller for the first time in a while, and we walked to the other part of the peninsula I live in, in Eastport, which is where the restaurants are. Um, That was a dismaying experience uh, yesterday. Why? There were a lot of people on the streets not social distancing as much as they should have, not wearing masks as they should have eating outdoors in restaurants, which still strikes me as particularly crazy, and generally just not really, I think, doing what they should have done. Again, everyone's judgment call is on their own, but I think, you know, restaurants, eating out at restaurants is not high on my list of things to do. Um, The one positive note is they opened up a local brewery, so they have a to-go window, so we got (laughs) some local beer, which is quite good, although it's also quite funny because they, 
I think there have been delays in terms of their bottling and canning operations. So they sell giant cans of beer rather than like six packs and well-labeled beer. It's actually quite good beer. It's just quite funny to buy a 32-ounce can of beer. <laughs> so, but that's been a nice, uh, a nice change. Is, is this a new brewery or an old one that reopened? Uh, a new one. It was supposed to open, I think, the first week of March officially. You can obviously understand that it didn't really open the first week of March. But I think it'll be a nice go-to spot because they have about six or eight beers that are worth trying. Oh, nice, nice, nice. What about you, Lee? What's life like in Jerusalem aside from eating at the falafel place? Well, I went there again yesterday. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so here we're still speaking about the second wave, the, this, uh, the incoming second wave. But broadly speaking, the effects of COVID-19 are, are, are not 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 really serious here. So far, we've had about 300 deaths in total. These days, we get somewhere between 100 and 200 new infections per day. But it's, it's far less than, than the worst times in what was like April or so. Uh, the university, Hebrew University, the university I'm at, so they finally decided that they're going to, that we are going to finish the semester teaching online. Uh, that was undecided until about a week ago. But it is now decided. I, I like that they waited till the last three weeks of the semester to keep it undecided. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and people had to make plans around that, which, which was difficult for some, especially students as well. Like some, some students just went back home, for example, and, and left their apartments here. And I think having to pay for an empty apartment, if you could help it, is, is not ideal. But it is what it is. Uh, they haven't said anything about the fall semester yet, uh, but hopefully we'll we'll do in in class teaching. <laughs> so where are you, Ida, and uh, what's happening there? We've just had our second stage of reopening, and they've actually extended it a bit further than we expected. We expected to go to a twenty-kilometer um, range of home, but having been within a five-kilometer range of home, uh, but they actually allowed us to go countywide, which is really delightful when you're in a totally flat inland county, one of the few Irish inland counties. I'm I'm in Kildare. I have to admit, I broke out last week and went to the neighbouring county, which has a beautiful range of mountains, Wicklow, and took my new little dog, which I just acquired under lockdown because I live alone. I needed a set of lungs there and brought her. She and I went up chasing rabbits in one of the local mountains. It was great. We didn't get caught. So you bought into one of the trends, which is get a dog. You wouldn't believe how hard I had to search. I couldn't get a dog anywhere. And eventually I just said, does anybody have a cross dog? And so they actually gave me a cross terrier. So she's brilliant. <laughs> so she's, now, she's no longer cross. She's, she's really well socialized really quickly. How old is she? But there isn't a dog to be had. She's one. Yeah. Oh, and oh. what was really great was my friend... Um, got took her the other dog that was rescued alongside her um and she was also in wicklow up that mountain we we had great fun with the two of them chasing rabbits <laughs> i wonder if after lockdown this is going to be all those infamous stories kind of like after easter where there's suddenly just bunnies released because everyone uh gets an easter bunny and then doesn't want to care for them if this is going to be the same thing everyone has a dog and then they realize when they finally have to go back to work that it's not conducive necessarily. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the pounds are already dreading it. 
because you know so it'll be a sudden change and and how how will everybody be able to find nannies or daycare for those dogs i know that after uh, 101 dalmatians came out so after the, the the movie came out like a lot of people adopted dalmatians and abandoned them like slightly afterwards not not a good story i guess <laughs> my kids like that book actually it is a good book no it's a good book but I mean, the story of people adopting dogs and abandoning them is kind of sad. Okay, so yeah, I guess we can start off the discussion here. So I, uh, we, we've heard a lot recently about the 1918 influenza pandemic, but we'll ask you to give us the, the broad basics about it. So, so first, what exactly was it? So I guess influenza, but how different is it from the common flu we have today? It was a type A uh, H1N1 influenza. Uh, we, we, we know that now. It, it, had, um, uh, it was obviously a new influenza because that's why it had such a massive effect on, on the world population. Compared to a seasonal in influenza, the, the, the different features were, um, for one thing, there were a lot of nosebleeds, uh, but the other more serious feature uh, was that the bodies, as somebody was becoming particularly ill with it, um, the lungs wouldn't be able to work well enough to oxygenate the blood because they were, were so full of uh, blood and um, albumin and other um, body fluids. And so there was very little chance of recovering from that, from that symptom in particular. So the other way this uh, pandemic is known is known as the Spanish flu. So maybe you could give our listeners kind of a both a reason why that's a misnomer. I think that's been put out there, but maybe just remind us. But then also when and where did it start and how did it spread as well? This is the fascinating question, the origin story, and we will never have a satisfactory answer to it, I think. But I think it's absolutely fascinating that um, America has always claimed it for itself. and. Uh, Britain has always claimed it as well, and they fight over which was the originator of this flu. Um, one story was that it comes from um, Camp Funston at Fort Riley in Kansas, and that a cook, Albert Gitchell, is the, uh, the first person to catch it. Well, he's definitely the first American, or most likely the most first American, uh, to be confirmed as having it. But we think that uh, it may well have already uh, been traveling around um, uh, the arenas of war, the various camps in the war. And uh, John Oxford, the British great researcher of the flu, um, thinks that it probably first uh, broke out in um, either Etaple or in Aldershot at either side of the English Channel, where the um, troops, the Allied troops, were being kept together in very close conditions alongside the, ar the live food for the army, uh, which in those days before refrigeration would be pigs and various kinds of birds like geese and hens and ducks. And they too can be vectors of influenza. So in a way, it was the ideal cauldron to create a new kind of influenza. Of course, it got the moniker Spanish flu, because really the first major coverage of it in the newspapers came when Alfonso Thirteenth, the young, I think he was 32-year-old king of Spain, caught it alongside about 3,000 of his courtiers. And this really made international news. Uh, whereas now we know that uh, it was already affecting 
particularly the American and the British and the French armies. Um, the German armies seem to catch it slightly later. And we also think that that now too may have been a factor on uh, the outcome of the war, because at a stage when the war was entering its crucial uh, phase, the German army was quite heavily um, weakened by it. The story you're telling is interesting, and it's a bit different than the story um, I've heard elsewhere. So the way I heard it, there is a, a censorship so the, the Allies censor the, pre, the, the existence of the flu, of the epidemic, and Spain was the only place that didn't, Spain was neutral in the war, so it didn't censor uh, its media, and that's why they reported on it, which is why they called it the Spanish flu. Is that a true story, or...? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the reason. You know, there was this parallel story running in the background. I Sorry, I should have mentioned that it was censorship, of course, that prevented uh, the Allies and the Germans from, from admitting in their newspapers that their armies were affected by it. But the curious thing I too find about it is that when I look in the Irish newspapers, it's very openly reported within Ireland at the time. So even though everybody says it's the Spanish flu because um, Spanish papers weren't censored. Um, the Irish papers were very open about it. So it was. It was openly covered in, in our national and provincial press. But it's just the position in the war is not covered. And they don't ever mention it in the war stories. Um, except occasionally they will say something like, rumours have it, uh, that it is rife amongst the armies at the moment. But that's probably a line that escapes our censor. Yeah. So can I ask why... Why is there such intense debate about the origins, right? I mean, you described the UK and the US are, you know, scholars are arguing about where it is. I mean, is there some like win you get for proving that? Or is there another reason why it, it matters to the, the longer story? That's a really good question. And I, I think it's people always like to know uh, the foundation. We always search. I mean, in epidemiology, they, they're always trying to search back to find out where the outbreak comes from. Like I me, mean, right from the time of John Snow and uh, the cholera, uh, his cholera research uh, in London, you know, searching for uh, where the cases of cholera are coming from. Uh, epidemiology tries to go back to the original case to find out what happened and why, and that they can get some kind of answers from there as to what's causing this, and I suppose to stop it ever happening again or to prevent it happening again. Um, but it, it's a really interesting question, but it, it's a, one I find really frustrating because you get these very definitive answers, like the, the, the Fort Riley one has taken off so much. You see um, uh, lots of broadcasts. It's very attractive in terms of news or in terms of a nice story. It's very attractive. Is it the answer? We don't know. We're, we're, we, I'm part of a group of various disciplines who look, we talk and discuss all the time uh, about what happened with Spanish flu. And we find cases, for example, we found some cases in Norway, we found some cases in Ireland uh, before uh, the Albert Gitchell case. Um, and I'm sure there, there is also other diseases like uh, pyrexia of unknown origin, PUO was known as, which may have also... Uh, at least some of those cases were probably flu. It's very hard to define. There was also um, um, an outbreak in London a couple of years earlier where of, of, a, of an influenza-like disease, which caused puzzle because some of the bodies turned that curious colour as well. 
So how do you diagnose the Spanish flu? I mean, do you, do you do that based on described symptoms? Do you do it based on what doctors back then wrote? Uh, again, it's a good question. I mean, they, they would have to, to, to diagnose symptomatically, but they, they would probably be just associating it with clusters in a region as, as they're looking at it as well. Um, it, it was this peculiar mauvish color, which I suppose was one of the defining characteristics of it. So in theory, you could have something that looks very similar from a year earlier or three years later, and it would be actually quite difficult to know in some cases, I guess is part of the problem with the origin story. Yes, and particularly as if they were taking um, samples to try and do a lab analysis on it, uh, they were testing for bacteria rather than for a virus, because they then understood it to be caused by a bacterium. And uh, so you know, their testing, the way they tested it would have been, would have caused error anyway. Yeah, it makes it a lot more difficult to kind of nail down what it is, when it is, and all those types of things. As I said, I thought your point about it makes for a good story, right? Because the good story that, again, I've read, right, is the famous story from the Kansas camp where it then spreads and it creates a beautiful narrative, um, which I suppose is, as you pointed out, the reason why it's so useful. Well, it certainly, you know, um, applies within America, but whether it applies globally or not is, is up for argument. So what can we say about the effects of the influenza pandemic? I mean, what was its mortality, for example? I've seen numbers ranging pretty widely. So let's say between 50 and 100 million people. Yeah, the, the, the first global estimate was done by Edwin Oakes Jordan, um, an epidemiologist writing in the late 1920s. And he estimated at about 20 million. And even since I started researching it, this in 2005, at that stage, we'd no Indian estimate. And it very quickly grew in, in recent years from about 11 million up to about 22 million and then back down again to 17 million. So depending. So the, the Indian estimate alone is now almost as big as the global estimate we had for it in the 1920s. Uh, the World Health Organization est suggests that it was about 50 million and perhaps up to 100 million. Uh, but we'll never really know because certifying death by uh, disease was um, uh, something that had begun um, in the 1800s with the cholera epidemics and typhus. And they, pr they promoted this idea that international co cooperation on epidemic disease was, was really uh, a key to controlling outbreaks, which had done so much damage in the 19th century. And the... Death cert the certification of death by disease was still in its infancy, uh, particularly in Africa. We have no robust statistics for Russia, uh, which was in a revolution. Uh, we have no uh, robust statistics for South America. Uh, we have patchy statistics for Africa. So the best we can do is, uh, you know, that very solid estimate, perhaps 50 million people, maybe 100 million people. Um, uh, and that's one of the things I keep emphasizing in the current epidemic or the current pandemic is that the statistics on pandemic disease are only indicators. They can't be solid. One of the things that happened, particularly in Ireland at the time, when I look at the records, is that um, our health authorities say that uh, doctors were so busy trying to keep the uh, ill living that they really didn't have time to keep up with the paperwork. And that, therefore, the figure for uh, Ireland's death, which is 20,057, uh, very precisely given by our Registrar General, 
but but they say that that can only be taken as a generalization uh, because that the, they they're not at all happy uh, that the doctor certified everybody who was dying. It's an interesting question. I think what you're saying is that the methodology, I mean, so we've already discussed in a previous episode that the methodology we use determines the results we would get, but you're saying something even more than that, then that, so that the doctors back then for for very practical reasons, just couldn't, as you said, keep up with the paperwork. So, so that influences or, or really changes the way we see this pandemic today. Yes, and as the uh, we have a daily announcement here from from our um, what we call net uh, the national public health emergency team, and the chief the Irish chief medical officer comes on every day and announces the numbers, and every few days he'll come on then again and say, well, really sorry, uh, Monday's statistic was wrong. We now know uh, that there were 20 more deaths on that day. We thought there were only five. Or um, maybe at the end of the month, he'll come on and say, well, actually, we have to add in 200 more deaths uh, because um, X hospital hadn't actually reported all their, de- their deaths. And I was asked about why, why that's the case, why there's such delays in reporting deaths. And actually, one of the things when I was looking back at the Registrar General's files, I could see where um, the death registers for 1918-1919 uh, would be dated by hand uh, when a death would be reported um, from that time, but put in in the 1950s and 1960s when they found evidence to show that that person had died from influenza, but it hadn't been in the earlier um, death certification. So maybe we'll get deaths like that years down the line added to this pandemic. Well, you could be like the US where certain states aren't liking their reports and they just fire their data people or make up new data as they go along. So at least in theory, it sounds like they're doing a better job than, than some of the states we have in the US. Could you say something about the reaction of, I mean, I know it's not, I mean, it's not really about the influenza pandemic at this point, but could you say a bit more about how people on the street or, or like your colleagues, friends, family react, if at all, to these adjustments and deaths? Does it make them feel more confident or less confident about these reports? Sorry, Lee, do you mean about, about the daily reports? Yeah, the daily reports of deaths that, that you mentioned that the government every once in a while kind of adjusts the numbers. I think the reaction when the adjustment in numbers happens is that if there is an error here, how many more errors are there? And the journalists in particular, when you see the, the, at this daily press briefing, you can see them asking these kind of questions. How sure are you? How confident are you? Um, that this is all there is to report. Are you sure there will be more clusters that you haven't heard about yet? And the response from the government team will usually be, well, we're doing our best to try and make sure that these are reported in a timely fashion and we are improving all the time. So it does, that does seem to be the case, that their reporting systems are, are improving um, and that people are beginning to realise more the significance and the importance of having public confidence for one thing, uh, but also of having uh, fast reporting so that you can track and trace, which is really the key and has been the key uh, in places like Korea or other parts of the world to really closing down the virus as much as they can. I would say at the moment, um, uh, we have almost completely flattened the disease here. 
um, we've gone from a position where you might have had 100 or so deaths a day down to four or five, maybe one. Um, there was one day we had no deaths. And we have reopened and uh, there doesn't seem to be any um, great imposition on hospital beds, particularly on the uh, coronary, uh, sorry, on the ICU beds uh, yet. So we're hopeful that position will continue. So sticking with Ireland, but returning back to the 1918 pandemic, what makes Ireland, I mean, I can hear differences today, the difference between Ireland and say Israel or the United States, but when it comes to 1918, what's different in Ireland versus other places, the United States or other places on the European continent, for example? Ireland is, is in a fascinating uh, political and strategic position when the influenza pandemic um, happens. Uh, we are very heavily involved in the war, but we're also about to begin uh the full blast of our revolutionary period when we become uh, leading towards a, a full separation from Britain. And that really happens from January 1919 onwards. Uh, in December 1918, we have um, a general election in which our leading nationals, nationalist party gets so many seats, uh, they feel entitled to declare a separate uh, government. And they set that up in January 1919. So we have these um, uh, intentions of very heavily involved in the war uh, on one hand and of also having our revolution, really uh, independence within sight at uh, the other hand uh, when, um, when the, the pandemic happens. There's a third factor, which I think was really key um, to why the British government didn't consider quarantine for Ireland. You think as an island nation, it would have been quite easy to, to cut us off and to cut the level of disease here. And that's because um, as the war was coming towards an end, Germany was really upping uh, the U-boat attack in particular on the seas around Britain and Ireland. And America had entered the war uh, in 1917. And it was using Ireland as um, a base for its navy. And it had a number of, also of air bases here. So it was offering, in, from those bases, it was providing uh, protection for convoys to um, knock out or to protect from the U-boat attacks in the, in the seas around Ireland at the time. So it would have been very difficult to quarantine us, given that war need was really crucial to the outcome of the war at the time. So how would the influenza pandemic compare to other disease epidemics of the period? So let's say 19th or early mid 20th centuries, such as cholera, for example? In Ireland, we've always had a particular feature on, on the cholera pa pandemics of the um, 19th century. And in particular, on the one in the 1930s and the one that happens uh, during our great famine of the late 1940s, 1948 through 50. Um, they've always been on our school curriculum. We've been very conscious of them and we have perhaps used them as a stick to beat the British government with. Not perhaps, we definitely did. And uh, it was very much viewed as part of the way that... Um, showed how people used it to try and show how badly Britain administered Ireland, uh, to put it simply. Um, whereas it's quite curious that, that that didn't happen 
with the influenza pandemic, even though it comes at the very end of British rule. And it was the last great plague, as a, a colleague of mine called it for her book title, uh, Katrina Foley, the last great plague that, they, that the Irish, um, the British administration in Ireland had to handle. So you mean that the influenza pandemic is not used in school curricula or that the British did not misadminister Ireland during that? What's the difference? The influenza pandemic wasn't uh, covered by Irish historians until the 21st century. Uh, when myself and uh, two other postgraduate historians, uh, Patricia Marsh and Katrina Foley, began to deal with it for our PhD topics. So this doesn't seem unique to Ireland in many respects, right? I mean, this is Alfred Crosby's famous book, although it's not in the first edition, it's this, the second edition from 1989, where he calls it the forgotten pandemic. Why is this the case, maybe for an Irish context first, and then we can talk more globally afterwards? Well, I think in an Irish context, um, the reason it was forgotten uh, was because we were far too busy with war and revolution, what I like to call boy history. Uh, military history and political history um, is a more typical lens at which to look at society. And it probably occluded uh, the history that was running along in the background. I'm actually just reading the Church of Ireland Gazette uh, at the moment to do um, a story on how they perceived it. Um, and the flu is mentioned, but only when the primate of all Ireland gets sick with it or that maybe church services had to be stopped because of it. But they're far more preoccupied with the national question and with the involvement in the war. I think that there's another reason for this forgetting. And that's because um, at the time, social history wasn't all that popular. And it really only becomes popular after the Second World War uh, when we see the growth of things like oral history, uh, more history from below, the growth of labour history. And historians get a different sort of lens, uh, looking at the lives of the individual and of family life and of domesticity and things like that becomes more acceptable. And it's like, in a way, that you literally can open a new perspective on history that historians just couldn't see before. So when you mentioned that it was you and your two other colleagues, I guess, were you all aware of each other? Um, yes, we all started working literally in the same year. At the beginning, it was quite, um, oh, oh dear, <laughs> somebody else is already working on this. Uh, but gradually, we found it was such a big subject. We, we were all able to carve out individual areas. Uh, my own, I suppose, area of specialism was really to uh, capture oral histories on it. So there would be children of survivors of the pandemic? People. No, I was curiously really, really lucky. Um, my then supervisor, David Dixon, he was probably getting a bit tired of th thinking he was going to have to spend the next four years listening to statistics. And he said, you know, you still have a small but closing window to capture oral history from living memory. Uh, so I did. I um, got about 50 interviews from people who would have been children at the time. Uh, so there were somewhere between maybe three uh, you know, the stage when you develop language and therefore begin to develop um, memory. And they were up to 15 years of age. Oh. They were somewhere between 95 and one lady was 107. Wow. 
Um, <laughs> one feature that I thought was really, when I thought back on it, every time I went into their houses, uh, they'd be quickly switching off something like uh, the racing from Pudgestown, or they'd be putting away their Irish Times. Uh, so there was always newspapers and there was always um, very active brains. So I suspect what they were, a lot of them were the people that I got that were particularly good were early readers. And indeed, a couple of them told me they were. Uh, one uh, lady um, told me that she was from um, Sandy Mount in Dublin um, and that she particularly recalled her parents and their friends at a cocktail party uh, gathering together in huddles. Uh, before the disease had actually arrived in Ireland and that they were talking worriedly about it and that if she came near, they'd shut up. So, of course, she said she described herself as becoming a curious listener and that she went to the newspapers and she was an early reader. She was five. So there were quite a lot of these children. Um, you know, you could, I think the term curious listener is lovely. Um, and um, they also show quite a lesson for us today that we typically think we can keep these things away from the ears of children and that they won't register them or won't understand. And um, I've been talking about this in particular with some of my medical friends who were saying, you know, it's very distressing when I come home. My toddler says, oh, mommy can't, can't hug. Mommy, mommy has to have her shower first. And I was saying to them, don't think that you're hiding it from them because my best interviewees are actually children aged three to five. Whereas the older ones describe it in a more journalistic way that describe wider society, whereas the kids describe the fear. It actually, there's, I mean, I, I don't know if he'll remember it, but one of my kids, two and a half year old twins, used to be a very outgoing, gregarious, I mean, he still is gregarious kid, but he's now much more afraid of people because he doesn't really interact with anyone aside from us and our, a couple of our immediate neighbors. And when he adds people to his circle, they're fine, but he's like much scareder of people, for lack of a better term. But hopefully that doesn't stick. That's so sad, but it's necessary, unfortunately. Yeah. So, if I could go back, um, yeah, yeah. if it wouldn't interrupt a sequence. Um, another reason why it wasn't remembered is something that we completely forget with our modern lens is that disease was such a normal feature of most societies at the time. Um, in Ireland, one-fifth of all the deaths on the island each year, uh, about 70,000 deaths per annum, it's about half that now, um, were of children under the age of five. Isn't that an awesome statistic? Like 20% I mean, of all deaths were children under the age of five? I mean, it's amazing that this was only 100 years ago, right? Yeah. But, I mean, to, to follow up on that, though, we do remember other pandemics, right, or epidemics. We do remember cholera. So why would we remember cholera but not the pandemic? I mean, if assuming that disease is everywhere and is, is not as unusual as it is today, why would we remember the cholera and not the, the influenza? Because it was storified. And what I find absolutely fascinating now uh, about when, when the centenary came, uh, we have a very strong local history society network here. And um, I was doing loads of talks. I've done maybe 40, 50 talks to local history societies. Oh. And when I would, when I started my interviewing, um, the people who had it would say, oh, yeah, I remember being sick when I was five. And I wonder, and this talk now of this being that thing, the Spanish flu, I wonder, was that it? 
And I'd sort of say, well, yes, and I'd do up to research and say, yes, it was in your locality at the time. And I know from the newspapers or I know from other deaths that it was around you at the time. Um, whereas now they would say, oh, you know, my mum caught that. Um, I have her death certificate because our death certification is now online. And um, I know that she died from it. And she was one of those, um, uh, that, that special age group that caught it, the 25 to 35 year olds. She was 29 at the time or whatever. You know, so that they're actually building in the elements from the history that myself and my colleagues have told into um, what they think is a memory. Uh, but in, 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 in a way, it's a reconstructive, uh, reconstructed narrative rather than an actual memory. So I think it sort of taught me a lesson that you need to have a story in order to have a conception of these diseases. It doesn't just happen. They don't just exist without the historian's narrative there to, to, um, to shape the story, if you like. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And as, as you said, I mean, how do you tease out some of the impacts, the social and the cultural impacts from all these other very earth-shattering, groundbreaking, whatever term you want to use, events of the nineteen late 1918, early 1919 period in Ireland itself, right? I mean, there's so much happening um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, every part of society. How do you tease out the impacts of the flu from everything else that's happening? That uh, brings forward an interesting thing is that, um, as historians, we tend to look at an event as a single box rather than looking at its connectivity to other events. And uh, so in recent weeks, I've had um, um, some economists asking me, how uh, did the flu affect the economy in 1918-1919? And I'm there saying, well, you can't really extract that from such a complicated period uh, where there is massive uh, wartime inflation going on, uh, where there are job losses where there are struggles to find employment. Um, And there there were so many factors uh, at play in Irish society and then in the broader world as well at the same time. You know, that it's it's impossible uh, to extract uh, the influenza and and look at it separately, say, from the conditions of war um, in Ireland from the revolutionary issues, uh, from things like inflation, uh, but also from the background level of disease that that is um, causing so much damage to Irish and other societies at the time. You would typically have seven or 8,000 deaths from pneumonia uh, in the 1910s. You'd typically have five or 600 deaths from measles. And those rates of death are obviously much lower now. You know, you'd hardly ever have a death from measles thanks to vaccination these days. Yeah. I mean, the interplay between history, narrative construction, memory, I mean, is really interesting surrounding this pandemic in particular. And I think the Irish case kind of highlights that in a sense. Yes, it certainly does, because there are there are so many different threads weaving in and out through it. And, and in terms of memory, um, you know, one of the questions uh, or one of the answers I would try to get without framing an actual question on it from my interviewees would be to try and, and see what their perspective about um, the British government at the time was, or, uh, you know, to try and in some way uh, get them to give a kind of political response, because I thought that would be interesting. And the other thing that I found fascinating was that so few of them mentioned God 
or the um, the idea of redemption or the idea that, that they even prayed at the time. Well, so few people mentioned that. And one of the reasons I'm sort of putting that down to was because I'm a, I'm a Protestant and most of the people I was interviewing were Catholic and that maybe by that stage, um, there was a nicety about it. They, they, they felt that, that well, we don't talk about God to, to another religion or something. But I, I was curious that they didn't talk about, oh, well, you know, we prayed, that was all we could do. Uh, there was nothing like that. And only one person blamed the British government, and that was um, a lady who was a nun, but at the time uh, she was living on an island on the Shannon and um, came our main river and came from a very small but very rep- um, area, which was very Republican, was known to be very Republican. She was said, oh, you know, the British government had really starved us at the time, uh, which wasn't really true. You know, it was actually the Germans who were cutting off the supplies, <laughs> the shoe, knocking the boats and the food supply boats out of the Irish Sea. And we weren't all that, you know, in terms of um, uh, starvation, we were nothing like the rest of Europe. Uh, we were a food bowl at the time by, by comparison. But in a sense, the memory, the memory becomes a narrative in itself. It kind of takes over the, the, the facts, so to speak. Yes, and I find this absolutely fascinating. And the way people interweave things that I know they wouldn't have known 20 years before as part of memory. And now they're absolutely convinced that they are a memories. And because this is a kind of a virgin topic, if you like, um, historiographically, it makes me wonder how people alter memories of other events that take place as well, you know, how much they are altered. It would be interesting. I don't know how many of the people you originally interviewed are still alive, but it would be interesting to do a series of follow-ups now that we've lived through this current pandemic and to see how those stories might change or be amplified by people's experiences today, actually. Well, all the people who uh, lived through it at the time, they're all now dead. So I'd have to do that with a Ouija board or something. Uh, but if, if uh, one of the things that I would definitely look, after, look, look forward to finding out is that there is a hereafter and that I can go back and talk to them. So that brings us to our last question, which is how should we tell stories of individuals that were affected by the 1918 pandemic then? Or how would you tell these stories? One of the interesting things I found about doing these interviews was I expected uh, in the beginning that I'd be hearing about the immediate crisis. But the story that I became more fascinated with uh, was the longer-term impact on some of my interviewees' lives. Um, For example, with um, historian R.B. McDowell, he um, told me that um, he was considered an invalid for most of his life, and yet he lived to 97. Uh, when I interviewed him, he was wearing an overcoat um, and a tweed blazer and a scarf, even though he was indoors in a nice warm office. Um, I put out my hand to him and I said, um, how are you? And he said, well, they tell me I'm very good for a man of my age and proceeded to tell me that his blood pressure was 97 over whatever it was, you know, to tell me his blood pressure. Uh, so clearly, you know, he had remained um, uh, very interested in his health as a result of that early brush with death. His parents had been told uh, that, that he was unlikely to, to live the night by the family GP. Um, with other people, they told me how... Um, if their father had died, 
uh, that they not only lost their father, but they also lost the family income earner. And sometimes even the family house. And so um, it was a huge disruption. Um, other people told me um, that maybe the surviving parent might decide to emigrate. And I've had some stories in particular of Irish people moving to Canada uh, with a father, in particular with his family and children, moving away to get over the sadness of losing his wife. And then they migrate and they not only lose their mother, but they lose their family circle. Uh, they lose their friends. So it, it, there's often a compounding of uh, the traumas, if you like, with these stories. And I suppose we could see that now too. Um, also, there was often a choice a limitation on, on health in some way. Uh, I know my own father was born in um, August uh, 1919. Um, and I often wondered whether his mother uh, caught flu uh, because he was always considered to be very sickly. Yeah. It would be interesting to do some of this work with survivors of other mid-20th century pandemics as well. Um, I mean, I don't know the historiography on it, but there's a series of other flu influenza pandemics over the 50s and 60s that presumably the survivors are still alive and we could do similar stories um, and to see how they remember things, right? I mean, that would be the way into those to some extent, I wonder. Well, well on that one, I could actually interview myself because I actually remember catching the flu in 1968 and being so fascinated by it because I had these amazing dreams. I kept been th thinking a crocodile was chasing me, <laughs> uh, you know, and never having experienced anything like it before, that the fever was fascinating. So maybe it was no wonder it became a flu historian. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, maybe now this is our interview of you doing what you did to your subject <laughs> and learning about your own fascination. <laughs> but I think it was also a, a, no other pandemic, either the, the, the one in the late 50s or the one in the late 60s closed down in the same way. I mean, the, the damage smaller, there were more like a million rather than um, the, 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 the 40, 50, 100 million, whatever it was. And the newspapers really showed that society wasn't closed down in anything like the same way uh, that it was then. And uh, this is why uh, the current pandemic, I suppose, is the nearest comparator, whether it ever becomes the same level of death, uh, but in terms of how it shuts down society. Because in 1918-19, uh, society was shut down because of the scale of illness. Like I estimate that... Um, about 800,000 Irish people probably caught it. And the um, WHO suggestion is that somewhere between one-fifth and half the world's population caught it in, in 1918-1919. But nothing, there was nothing like that to compare with in the other two pandemics in the middle of the 20th century or with the 2009 pandemic. When you say that Ireland shut down, do you mean that people just decided not to open their stores or was the government involved? There was no general shutdown in 1918, but what did happen in Ireland was that uh, the local authorities, it was local authorities rather than government, had, had the um, uh, responsibility for telling things like schools, um, cinemas, um, and other places, whether they could stay open or shut down. The cinema owners actually appealed. They said that, that they would go out of business if they shut down. So they agreed to close between sittings and gave uh, maybe 15 minutes or so going around with sprays to, to, to um, disinfect the premises, which, of course, probably did very little. Um, 
but it was kind of a natural shutdown that either um, people were too ill to get out of bed or else people stayed home because they were so afraid of catching it. And there are lots of reports in the newspapers um, from um, of shops where they say that the footfall has gone low or that else that that um, trade that the staff have gone ill with the flu so that trade is, is interrupted that way the shopkeepers shop workers of all types were one of the um, cohort who died in large numbers as were other people who dealt with the public like post workers uh, police um, and of course doctors nurses priests so I think we can begin to conclude our episode I've learned quite a bit, especially with your uh, very different methodologies from our own pre-modern, where you can do oral interviews of some of your subject, which I'm, I'm very jealous of. Um, and you get really some insightful historical points, but also wonderful stories, I think, that um, at least in our period are, are obviously not there. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. So I thought that was a really fascinating discussion we just had and very different, I think, than what we expected. I think many of our previous episodes focused on a pandemic or public health, broad conceptual ideas. And this was really one of the first times we've gone into detail into different experiences and memories of a pandemic. Yes, I think specifically stories. Stories is, is what really came out of this episode. So stories of, of people who, who've been through this and, and the way they experienced a pandemic, the way they remembered or forgot the pandemic. So, so story, memory, these are, are the main themes that, that came out of this for me. Yeah, I'd become aware of her work and among other reasons why I was really keen to have her on was we're trying to bring on people from different perspectives during this current uh, pandemic across the globe. So, you know, we had someone on from South Africa, various people from different places in the United States. Um, and so I really wanted someone from Ireland because I knew that that would be a completely different perspective. Um, but I was really blown away by the, by her methodological approach to history, which is something very different, obviously completely outside something you and I can do, Lee. Um, and the way it allows her to tell these very moving, beautiful stories. Yes, I mean, it, it's not something you and I could do, but it is something other historians could do. And in a way, I think it, it might be underrated as a methodology, oral history, that is. So interviewing, actually going to these the homes of these 95 to 107, I think, year old person was, was the oldest she interviewed and just asking them about stories that about things that happened what like almost a hundred years ago yeah i'm reminded actually one of the other few books i've read that heavily did this and i think this is a, a well-used very well thought through methodology for at least as far as i know a 20th century united states history but the other book that i've books that i've read that use it very heavily are Robert Caro's biographies of LBJ, 
um, if you're aware of those, Lee. Do you know those at all? No. I highly recommend reading them, but they're the they will be the definitive biographies of LBJ essentially forever. They're in, I forgot now, a number of volumes, but the first one, which is on his early years um, through the 30s, there were all these stories that LBJ had put out about his life that everyone used to report and they would write in these books. And among other things, what Caro discovered by interviewing people was that Johnson had created these fictive stories of his own past and that people had just assumed that they were true. And when he then went back and interviewed people, he discovered a very, very different person. I mean, I'm not surprised. We have politicians that do the same thing here. So, <laughs> and, and do that not in the, the 60s, but, but today. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I thought was very nice is it actually pushed, in some senses, the pandemic itself, right? The disease, the influenza, to the periphery and put people at the center, which is something you and I have, have long talked about trying to do with our own research. Yes, the source material she had, or the potential source material, material that she had, really pushed her in that direction. Focus on people, not on pandemic. Yeah. As I said, at one point, it would be interesting to interview her on her own flu experience, which sounded quite interesting. <laughs> as an oral history of the, of the 68 flu. Okay, so as we conclude this episode, we actually thought to change our tradition because, you know, why not? So we're going to change the end episode topic to broader discussions, at least for now, of COVID-19 and academia, and specifically reflections about some of the changes COVID-19 is causing and might cause in the future in academia. And academia might actually be one of the sector, sectors that are substantially affected by COVID-19. So we've heard of many universities already not opening classes in person for the fall of 2020. And last I've seen, uh, there are several hundred institutions that have declared hiring freezes, which is to say that they're not going to hire anyone uh, in the near future. So probably over the next year, over 2020, 2021. So I guess we can start this new tradition of looking at COVID-19 and academia by focusing on the question of giving academic presentations in a webinar format. So this is something that's actually pretty frequent now. It wasn't at all a thing as far as I understand or remember before COVID-19, but now everyone seems to be doing that. And both of us actually presented our work a few days ago as part of a series on, on past pandemics at Princeton. So Merle, what's your feeling on, on these academic presentations in webinar format? You know, like everything in life, Lee, I think there's a positive and a negative, or probably a series of positives and negatives. That's profound. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate the heavy sarcasm there. On the one hand, uh, I like that it reduces boundaries in terms of who can attend and who cannot attend. So, you know, if, if we had given a seminar, let's say at Princeton, we might get 25, 30, 40, maybe 45 people in a room would be a big talk. Yeah, 45 would be great turnout at Princeton. Would be great turnout, yeah. Um, and this last seminar I think we had, we had somewhere around 140 people on the webinar or thereabouts. Yeah. So, 
So in theory, there were a lot more people. Now, how many people were completely zoned out? We can't know, but I guess people fall asleep in the back of live lectures too. So yeah, <laughs> that's the same. So that's really good. Um, and there's also questions, obviously, of accessibility. Um, people who are less able to travel, this allows them to do it. So I, I really like that perspective and that you have people from across the globe, right? We mean, people from Germany, people from England, um, really all over the place. So that was good. But on the other hand, the negative is that we can't really figure out the audience, right? I mean, you're literally talking into a dot on your camera. Um, and none of the fun parts of a lecture are there. Both I, by that, I mean, you no know, going out to dinner, but also stuff, you know, like putting jokes in a presentation, right? I mean, as, as you know, Lee, I like to put lots of jokes in the presentation. I know you do too. And you just kind of can't because you're not going to get anyone laughing at, as we did as a, as an image of Nicolas Cage. Uh, <laughs> what's the point, right? I mean, that's, that's half the fun to me of presentations is just inside jokes and even just outside jokes. Yeah, you really get no feedback. I mean, the most you can get is like the icon of like hands clapping, which is not very exciting. No, I mean, people say something to you later, but again, it's very different. You don't get the smiles and the laughs and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, what do you think, Leah? How did you think our presentation went or other ones you've done? So, so I mean, to piggyback on what you said, uh, right now, actually. So I feel that the fact that you can't really socialize with people before and after the talk, I mean, so getting to a new place or a place that you know and have friends or a new place or, where you can meet new people and, and get new ideas is something that happens around the talk and, and I'm currently missing. I mean, it's just become much more functional, these talks, right? I can log in. When I, when I attend some of these talks, I can log in literally the minute they begin. And I can leave immediately when the talk ends. Now it's nice. I mean, I can do that in my pajamas or whatever. But I'm also missing on, on, on the social aspect. So that's your advantage and disadvantage if, if you want to take it that way. Now, the fact that many of these talks are recorded is helpful. I thought it was helpful. But I'm actually surprised that there's no that I don't know at least, or I haven't seen anywhere that tries to collect these talks. Because, I mean, these talks represent like, pretty good scholarship by a wide group of people who have been working on this. So why not create some kind of database or something? I don't know, a YouTube for academic videos, but no one seems to have that much interest in that. That gives me a good idea, Lee, because as you know, I have a website I've made with a few other people called the Middle Ages for Educators. And that's something that that website could actually house quite easily. So thank you. No, yeah, I mean, if please give me credit if you do that. <laughs> but, but I think the problem in doing that is that it's just, it's difficult to find, right? I mean, different institutions would record these things and place them somewhere, but it's difficult to find where all these institutions are kind of hiding their data or hiding their, their talks. Right, so we gave a talk through Princeton's Medieval Studies, and the only place that would know that these talks happened, the only website that might have them eventually, would be Princeton's Medieval Studies. Yeah, you would essentially have to do one of two things. Either know about the talks in advance, and thus be able to know where the website that the recording is placed, and or 
just troll through everyone's medieval studies page, as it were, in hopes that maybe it was there, which sounds like not an enjoyable task. Although, you know, if if you if you have some pay that you can pay some undergraduates or graduate students to do it and they get paid by hour, that seems fine. Yeah, not not very exciting work, I have to say. Didn't say it was exciting, but if you were paying me, you know, X amount of money per hour, I would do it. Well, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. But, but I mean, the main point, though, I mean, to, to go back to what you've said earlier, the main advantage, I think, is really the, the outreach or the accessibility these talks currently have. When I gave talks in person, it was almost entirely to academic audiences. And based on the questions we've received, based on questions I've seen other people receive, I think then the amount of people or the type of people who are attending these talks, I mean, sure, a lot of them are academics still, but my impression is that we also get a lot of other people as well. So just general public members who are interested in this, maybe they're bored, maybe they, they've discovered that these online talks are a thing. But ultimately, I think it's, it's only useful for us, for, for the discipline, the profession in, in general. Yeah, I mean, what I would like to ideally see happen is, assuming people can travel again, is that talks get recorded moving forward so that people can attend either in person or on a webinar format, and there becomes a way in which the webinar people can also ask questions. And I don't think this is really that difficult technologically, um, but can certainly be improved. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not difficult at all technologically. And the, the only question is whether there's a will to, to do that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that was nice is, you know, you can send links to your parents. Like, I don't know if you've done that and invited your parents to talks yet. I, I have not. No, I have not. I had my parents at our last talk. Like. I, I know that. For a <laughs> I saw them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I guess this, this is actually useful, I think, this reflection on academia at least until we run out of topics we can cover. We, we, we never run out of topics to complain about academia. Like. Wait, you mean academia is not perfect, Merle? Not everyone can see your laughter. <laughs> okay, so I guess that, that on this note, we, we can probably conclude our episode. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe listen to an academic webinar too.